Good morning, everyone. I hope that uh, you've got your computer turned on and you were able to uh, get to the link fairly well. Thankfully, we don't have to do this uh, each week as we did before, but at the same time, thankfully, we can do it when we have things like a snowstorm. We just uh, canceled service and we had to forgo the whole thing. So uh, we are thankful to, to do this and I am able to meet with you this morning. So good morning and uh, I hope that you are refreshed. I'm going to assume that uh, you got up and got dressed so you could feel that you were a part here even by what you were wearing. But if not, you might be in your pajamas as well, <laughs> sitting on your couch. Glad that we could all come together. So um, let's begin by praying. And uh, to do that, let me remind us that we want to continue to pray for some of the things that I sent out in an email. We'll pray for uh, the Stevens, Greg Stevens' mom, who, as you knew, died recently. And so uh, let's pray for him. Let's pray for Jen, who also was caring for her and for that family. And for uh, those of us who, uh, have uh, had some illness, uh, namely uh, Jen Nicholson, who had uh, Nicholson, who had her uh, surgery and is still recovering from that. So let's continue to pray uh, for her as well. And as always, we can pray for our church and our nation. So with that, let me open us up in a word of prayer, and then we'll open up God's word together. So pray with me, Father. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to. Meet, though we cannot meet in person, that is the ideal, that is what we are commanded to do as the normal expression of our worship and fellowship with one another. But in those times where that is prevented, we thank you that you've provided other ways for us at least to, as a body, be gathered around your word together. And so thank you uh, for giving us uh, that opportunity. And Father, we do want to continue to pray for your comfort and your care. And so for the Stevens and ask you to bring a unique comfort or the unique comforts of faith through the spirit to Greg and to Jen and the loss of Greg's mother. Use them as a witness and a light as they express and demonstrate their trust in you, even in sadness. And so Use them, uh, Lord, as a light as you comfort them because of their faith in you. And Father, we do pray for Jen Nicholson that you would continue to restore her body after her surgery. And uh, for others among us who are sick and not well, that they would know the comforts of your spirit, that they would be restored to health in your due time. Father, now we pray as we open your word together that you would encourage our hearts, that you would teach us, Holy Spirit, from your word, that you would guide us into all truth. We among the world that at large rejects your revelation and does not worship the Son, but we do. And so we gather for that purpose, that we could behold your glory, that we could listen to your wisdom, that we could be changed into your likeness. And so it is to that end that I pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. All right. Well, we are going to uh, find ourselves again this morning in Ecclesiastes chapter seven. We're going to 
pick up where we left off last week, looking at verses 15 through 29. So we'll uh, complete that this morning, Ecclesiastes 7, verses uh, 15 through 29. And we titled this section, or I titled this section, Wisdom in Light of Sovereignty and Sin. Wisdom in Light of Sovereignty and Sin. It's no uh, news to us that the world is in a state of fallenness. And to say it's fallen is to say this, that it has fallen from its original state of uncorrupted goodness, of righteousness, a, a world without sin that without corruption reflected the glory of God as he intended it to do. But we don't live in that world anymore. We live in a world corrupted by sin. And yet, though we see the corruption of sin and the destruction that sin brings, we also fully recognize and rejoice in the fact that God yet still rules over even a fallen creation. And he rules over a fallen creation by a sovereign hand and for ultimate good. But that produces a bit of a conflict in some ways because the relationship between the unsearchable wisdom of God's providence over a world under the burden of sin is revealed in its ultimate purpose. In other words, the end of the story, but it is concealed in the sense of all of the details of God's intended purposes to bring about this ultimate end are hidden from us. We don't know them and they remain to us then mystery, a mystery. And so we speak of God's mysterious ways. And so the wise person then, according to scripture and according to Ecclesiastes in our passage, is the humble person who embraces the secret will of God, that, that secret will of God that he knows only himself, but works out in the details of his creation, that we submit to that or embrace that secret will and trust, while at the same time obeying the revealed will of God in obedience. And so the wise person realizes that he and she carries about within us as well the reality of this fall, as much as we have to live in it and witness it in the world around us. So wisdom grasps our own weaknesses and corruption while resting in the promise of God's grace and the assurance of God's purposes coming to pass. Wisdom acknowledges our helplessness to figure it all out, to be the ultimate ones who correct it as though we somehow could control the ultimate direction of the world or our own lives for that matter. And wisdom humbly recognizes that we can't figure it all out. And so wisdom is content to live under God's sovereign hand, fearing him, enjoying his good blessings and gifts, seeking to avoid sin, and patiently waiting for God's timing to set all things right. And so that's really the overall message of this section, the book of Ecclesiastes, and in many ways, a theme throughout all of scripture. Wisdom then lives in light of the reality of sin and yet God's sovereignty over it. So let's read our passage once more and then we'll jump back into it. I'll have a brief reminder of what we covered last week and then move on from there. So beginning in verse 15, Solomon says this, Ecclesiastes 7 verse 15. I have seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness 
and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. Do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Do not be excessively wicked and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp one thing and also not let go of the other. For the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. Wisdom strengthens a wise man more than 10 rulers who are in a city. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Also, do not take seriously all words which are spoken so that you will not hear your servant cursing you. For you also have realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. I tested all this with wisdom and I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. What has been and remote, what has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? I directed my mind to know, to investigate and to seek wisdom and an explanation and to know the evil of folly and the foolishness of madness. And I discovered more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. One who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. Behold, I have discovered this, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find an expression, which I am still seeking, but have not found. I have found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. And so it is the wisdom of God through Solomon. And we noted first, reviewing from last week in verses 15 through 18, that wisdom recognizes the sovereignty of God. And so continuing from his statement in verse 14, that God's sovereignty rules over both the good and the adversity in a person's life, he moves directly into verse 15 with the acknowledgement that we cannot figure all of that out. Why good comes, why adversity comes, who it comes to, who it doesn't come to, why one is spared, why one experiences it, and how this relates to the individual themselves in terms of their relationship to God. And so he says, I have seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. And this then is a shocking statement because it goes against the very grain of everything that would be expected normally in the covenant, namely that righteousness brings about blessing and wickedness brings about curse. And now the reality is that is generally true, but it is not always true. And so we see that lament throughout all of scripture, most climactically in some ways, even in Psalm 73, where the psalmist saw the wicked prosper, he, as a righteous, was suffering. It caused him to act, in his own words, like a wild beast as he envied them or was tempted to envy them. But then he came into the sanctuary of God and his perspective was set right. He realized their end and he was restored in his fellowship with God. He was renewed in his trust in God. And he gives those great words, whom have I in heaven but you? Besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. He had learned wisdom, but he had learned wisdom with the struggling with the very thing that Solomon is here addressing, namely that things don't always work out like we think. And so then he gives instructions 
And he says, do not be excessively righteous and do not be excessively wicked. As we noted, that it's, it's not a, a command or a, a wise injunction to have a little bit of righteousness and a little bit of wickedness and kind of find the middle ground in life. He's using a kind of sarcasm here. It is impossible for one to be overly righteous because we are commanded to be holy as God himself is holy, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. He's not talking here about some kind of uh, limited obedience to God, nor is he talking about some kind of general acceptance of wickedness. Rather, using a kind of sarcasm, he's simply saying this, don't think then that you can manipulate your future by your own doing, by some zeal for religion, as though then that obligates God or guarantees God's providential working in your life. And at the same time, don't think that you can embrace wickedness without consequences. One will lead to ruin and the other one will lead to death. Rather, embrace the, embrace the heart of both of those and live contentedly under God's hand, enjoying his good gifts. Fear God, that is the way that we respond. Fear God and obey him. Fearing God turns away from sin and fearing God trusts him in the things that we cannot understand. And so he says, it is good for to you grasp one thing and not let go of the other for the one who fears God comes forth with both of them, comes forth with contentment in this life, contentment and mystery and enjoyment of the good things that God brings. And he lets God met those out as he seems wise. And to have this wisdom then is the utmost advantage to the individual, verse 19. Wisdom strengthens a wise man more than 10 rulers who are in a city. And here he acknowledges that this kind of wisdom is of greater value than the political power, the power of wealth, the power of government to civil authority. Above all things, wisdom is what strengthens a wise man. How does it strengthen a wise man? Because it gives him, in a sense, a self-mastery, an internal contentment that is absent from those who have power without wisdom, who are yet then controlled by the threat of loss, who are controlled by the worries of this world, and so wisdom is much more valuable. But then in verse 20, he goes into wisdom under the reality of sin. And he introduces the fact that the context of wisdom is in a world that is under sin. Under sin. Sin is something that corrupts both the world that we live in and it corrupts the ones who live in the world, even the wise person himself. And so he says in verse 20, indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. This is an Old Testament acknowledgement of the universal depravity of man. And that is the context in which we live. And so he reminds us then that the wise person lives circumspectly and humbly. He says in verse 21, also do not take seriously all the words which are spoken so that you will not hear your servant cursing you for you also have realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. And in other words, then he gives an example here. He gives an example of a broader principle of wisdom, namely of humility, of humility. If there's one thing that we are prone to do in our fallenness, it is to be quick to judge and to judge others on the things of which we ourselves have blame and guilt. And so he uses the example here of overhearing a servant cursing 
you, in this case, the, that person, but wisdom realizes that what I'm hearing and offended by is what I myself have been guilty of and have offended God and others with. And so humility recognizes that it doesn't get too stirred up, doesn't move to rash anger and foolish decisions, but realizes again that we are sinners who live among sinners. But this then produces a perplexing reality. How are we to understand sin? How am I to come to conclusions about ultimate meaning and purpose and how to live? And so he says in verse 23, if this is the condition of men, he says, I have tested all this with wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. What has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? Verse 25, I directed my mind to know, to investigate and to seek wisdom and an explanation and to know the evil of folly and the foolishness of madness. And again, there we looked at last week, which is where we ended off, that because things are like this, because we live in a fallen world where a sin corrupts what we would expect, corrupts what is good, and because God works in ways that are contrary to our natural wisdom, to try to, try to, to, try to understand this world on our own terms is a futile quest. It's a futile quest. So wisdom rests then under the sovereignty of God, and that, that is the frustration that Solomon felt, is that he sought to understand these things on his own terms, and it left him with a sense of futility. And so again, as we noted last week, the wise person lives contentedly under God's revelation. God has told us how to live in this world, not to try to figure out the things that are a mystery to us, but to live in light of what he has revealed and to trust him for the rest. And then that moves us into this last section this week in verse 26. And he immediately then gives another example. He states a principle, namely the futility of trying to figure out and understand the mysteries of this world and even the mysteries of sin on our own terms. And he gives a median example then in verse 26. And he says, I discovered in this quest more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. The one who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. And so the first example that he gives then of this mystery of this corruption and this fallenness is the seduction of the ungodly woman. It is the allure, allure of sexuality, of immoral sexuality, a common theme, as we know, both in Solomon's life and in Solomon's writings. Both in Proverbs, that is a key theme of how to avoid the immoral woman. Conversely, Song of Solomon's is a celebration of sexuality with a righteous woman within the covenant of marriage. But throughout, there is this warning, this warning of sexuality gone astray that captures one and brings them to death. Now we might ask the question, why of all of the things that Solomon addresses as sin, of all the evidences of sin in this world, does he immediately go to the issue of sexuality, the issue of sex? Why? Well, one reason is because man's corruption is so clearly seen here. Sexuality is at the heart of our humanity, and it is one of the most powerful forces in humanity and in our human experience. 
One, it said this. Actually, it was the writer Tolkien, whom we're familiar with from Lord of the Rings series and those books. He wrote a series of letters to his sons. And he wrote in these letters to his sons to give them wisdom about sexuality and how to conduct themselves wisely in this world. And he said this in one of his letters. This is a fallen world. The dislocation of the sex instinct is one of the chief symptoms of the fall. The devil is endlessly ingenious and sees it as his favorite subject. He is as good every bit at catching you through generous, romantic, or tender motives as through baser or more animal ones. In other words, his temptations to immorality can come in the sweet guise of romance and relationship or the base draw of raw sexuality. Now, because this is so, because of the power of sexuality and because of the power of fallen sexuality to do harm, it's helpful to sketch out a brief outline of God's design and purpose in sex. And I think this is important to really understand the wisdom that Solomon is bringing us to here. And let me begin by noting this. The very image of God at the very beginning of Scripture in the book of Genesis, man is described in categories of sexuality. Man is described in categories of sexuality. God created man in his image, male and female, he created him. Those are terms, those are realities, those are categories that are essentially sexual. It's more than just physical, it's more than just the physical act, but it is not less than that. But the point is, is that it is, man is described in God's image in sexual terms. Now, I want to be careful to distinguish here. There is a difference between sex and sexuality. Sex, of course, is the act, the acting out on these differences, uh, these desires between male and female. Sexuality is something more and broader than that. It is uh, the complex of all of those things that mark out as distinct, those gender distinctions between male and female that are related to our sexual nature as male or female. But the point here is, is that man is described in God's image in terms of sexuality. Secondly, the foundational building block of humanity and society requires the fruit of sexual experience. God immediately tells them after saying, uh, making that they were made in our image, man is male and female. He immediately says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In verse 28, that requires the coming together of the male and the female to produce an offspring. In other words, sexual experience. And the exclusive and fundamental human relationship in which, in which this sexual experience is to take place is the marriage covenant. It is the marriage covenant and the bonding sexual union within this covenant that forms the capstone and climactic ending of the creation account. You, the last words, the very last words of the creation account, the very last words of the closing remarks of creation before it was corrupted by the fall. And for that matter, the very end of scripture is going to pick up on this imagery were words of sexual union, were words of the marriage that relate to the marriage covenant. He says, for, 
in Genesis 2, 24 through 25, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were naked and not ashamed. And so the context, it's easy to jump into the, the way it has been corrupted, but we first, in order to understand the corruption, need to understand its significance within God's design. Sex is, again, by God's design, one of the most powerful human drives. And it was created that way to be a powerful experience of union between a husband and wife within the marriage covenant, the bond of the marriage covenant. And so we cannot understand sex, and particularly from a biblical worldview, from God's from a view of reality, without understanding marriage. Sex and marriage cannot be divorced. They are, by God's design, inseparable. The very nature of sexual sin and rebellion is this, to separate the sexual experience from the bond of the covenant union of marriage. That is at the very heart of sexual sin, is to take it and make it something individual outside of God's design within the marriage covenant. And so then what is created to be good becomes a means of sorrow and destruction. So let me just briefly consider that. Briefly consider sex within its designed purpose of marriage, within marriage. It is the one union, the sexual union, that sets apart every other relationship of humanity in which there is the experience of one flesh within the marriage covenant. And let me give you just three, three ways that, uh, to identify the significance and the importance and the purpose of this bond of sexual union within the covenant of marriage. First has to do with community. Community. The way that marriage functions within the community of humanity. Marriage, this covenant of marriage, brings a change of status. He said, God did in those closing chapters of Genesis chapter 2, that the man shall leave his father and his mother. He is leaving one family unit to begin another. As a matter of fact, one said this, it is the creation not merely of a sexual union, but also of a public society. A new family union is created in marriage. Marriage establishes the foundational relation union unit that forms the very core of a society and gives it stability. That is by God's design. It is moving from one family union to create another that will then produce another and so on and so forth and be the very foundation of a stable society, of a good society. It is the public pronouncement and arrangement of the establishment of a new family unit. So marriage has to do with community. Secondly, it has to do with covenant. It is a unique commitment. He says that you shall leave his father and mother and he shall be joined to his wife, joined to his wife. Now, although the term is not used here, the elements of covenant are evident and it is affirmed marriage is a covenant uh, throughout the rest of scripture. Uh, stated most simply in Malachi 2.14, speaking of a man's wife, she is your companion, your wife, by covenant. What is a covenant? Well, 
A covenant, particularly in this case, is a permanent relationship of mutual commitment, care, and responsibility. By responsibility, meaning that it has consequences if it's violated and good consequences if it is preserved. It is a public and legally bound union of a family relationship, of a husband and a wife, which would later form a family. It is, however, far more than a public and legal bond. It's far more than that. For marriage is not established by man. It is a union established and witnessed to by God. It is a joining that God does. It's not merely a legal document. It is not merely a piece of paper. It is a established covenant relationship designed and sealed by God, which is why when Jesus addressed the issue of divorce, after quoting this passage, he said, Matthew 19, 6, therefore what God has joined together, let no man separate. In other words, he recognizes the separation of that union only by those means and reasons that he himself has prescribed. Anything else is a violation of his will. One emphasizes this, one author did, this issue of divine witness in the covenant of marriage in this way. He said, quote, in the marriage covenant, it is the divine witness and hence sanction that presses on us the call to faithfulness and that distinguishes marriage from simply a relationship chosen by the man and the woman. So the marriage union and covenant is a relationship created by God to reflect his own divine nature as a trinity, reflected in the words to become one flesh, to become one. It is his own exclusive, intimate, permanent covenant love for his people that is pictured in marriage. God designed it to be a reflection of that. Think of that. So great and profound is this mystery that Paul in his climactic statement in Ephesians 5 that we're familiar with, after again using the language of Genesis 2 and the two shall become one flesh, says this, this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So marriage is of such a profound significance that God himself designed it and established it to picture our very union with Christ and the new covenant. And the profound significance of this union is attested to by the sexual union that uniquely confirms and sets it apart from all others. And that's the third aspect of this relationship between marriage and sexual union. The first is community, that it is publicly recognized as a new family unit within the community of mankind, establishing a stable society. It is a public covenant, legally bound, but more than that, that is a reflection of what God himself has bound by his own sovereign purposes and work in the marriage covenant. God has joined together in a permanent and lasting relationship, this husband and wife, where there's care, commitment, safety, and so forth. And the consummation of this relationship is the sexual union, the bond of sexual union. Shall leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so the pleasure and the freedom and the practice of sex and the full expression of our sexuality within the public and permanent union of marriage is what sets that relationship apart from every other relationship on the planet. On the planet. 
Sex, therefore, in all of its cornucopia of privileges and purposes and designs by God, is at its essence this. It is the bond that consummates and continually consummates and confirms the uniqueness of that relationship from all others. In a word, it is exclusive. It is exclusive. And it's important here, just as a footnote to that, to understand that sex is, sex is far more than merely the act of sexual intercourse. Sex is the whole, the whole a scheme of sexuality and expression. It involves the entire range of sexually driven activity. And it is a part of God's good design, a part of his holy design, a part of his means for the pleasure and the good of man within the context that he designed it to be expressed. And it is an exclusive relationship. And that has to be grasped. One said this, marriage in its nature excludes the possibility of sexual union with anyone other than the pledged marriage partner. Indeed, the very exclusivity of marriage distinguishes it from the inclusivity of friendship. And so sex within the bond of marriage is not only commanded, is not only an expression of God's goodness to man, is not only to be pleasurable and delighted in, it is the only context for it to be experienced. Therefore, it is not merely the expression of a close relationship. It's not merely the expression of even a loving relationship. It is particularly the reality that consummates the marriage bond and relationship as God's design. And so the power and the intimacy of the one flesh relationship within marriage is such that God designed it to uniquely and mysteriously display the intensity of his own covenant love for his people. There's Ephesians 5, if you wanted to write down, and we won't turn there for time's sake, but Ezekiel 16, 7 through 8, God uses that same imagery of consummation to refer to his entering into a covenant with Israel. Now, because of the exclusivity of the sexual relationship to the marriage covenant, and because of its intense power within the person to engage in it outside of God's design makes an experience that has immense pleasure for the moment, which is why it's so enslaving in its wrong context. But it brings with it the consequence of shame, pain, sorrow, regret, and destruction. We can merely look at the divorce rate we can merely look at the, the pain of broken families, of ruined careers, of ruined character, of ruined marriages, of ruined ministries, of ruined friendships. The onslaught of destruction that this good thing created by God has brought when it is divorced from its context. Now Solomon knew the power and the danger of sex and his sexual appetite. And the particular power of the sexual drive that when not kept in check, again, is the ruin of so many of which he stands as a prime example. In Solomon's case, the power of his drive for sex and sexual experience outside of the bounds that God designed for it to function led to his ultimate ruin. And for that matter, the hardship and the devastation that would come to the nation of Israel and cause conflict and death and misery within itself for generations to come, the very division of the nation which was related ultimately to the failure of Solomon 
to keep sex within the bounds of God's design. We know this. I'm just going to remind you. What is it that marks the climactic fall of Solomon? It was this very thing. First Kings 11. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said, the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you. They will surely turn your heart away after their gods. But Solomon held fast to these in love, 700 wives, 300 concubines. And he says his wives turned his heart away. And when Solomon was old, his heart turned away after other gods. And his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of his father David had been. Verse 6, Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. He built idols and places of idolatrous worship. And in the end, God then told him, I am going to tear away the kingdom from you. Not in his lifetime, but it would happen in his son Rehoboam's lifetime. And the kingdom was split, and then we know the history of Israel. Those are the northern and the southern tribes. The point here is simply to note, Solomon knew the corrupting power of immorality, of sex outside of God's design and purposes. So he knew that, but he also knew that there was a right way. Again, we have Song of Solomon, which celebrates sexuality within the covenant of marriage and all of its eroticism and pleasure and sensuality and love and expression of the union of two who are committed to one another in life and in the bond of marriage. But beyond Solomon's own experience, the unrighteous use of sex and sexuality is an important theme of Scripture. As a matter of fact, isn't it interesting that in the book of Romans, when Paul begins to explain the gospel, beginning with God as the ultimate authority and creator whose glory is revealed in creation, when he begins to reveal the worship gone astray of man, what is the very first thing that replaces the worship of God? It is unrestrained sexual pleasure. It is the autonomous pursuit of sexual freedom. So it's called, in fact, it is bondage, as we'll see. So what does he say in Romans 1? They worship the creature rather than the creator. What is the first expression of this? Unrestrained sexual expression. God gave them over then to degrading passions. Women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural, and in the same way men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire for one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own person the due penalty of their error. They, the worship of God then is replaced with, in this case, the worship of pleasure. Many, many other places to go for that. But I want to connect this here then. Because God's design and purpose for the pleasure of sex to be contained within marriage as a means of pleasure and union is its purpose than to experience it any other way brings destruction and pain. And that's exactly where he takes us in verse 26. And I discovered more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. God did not design the, the relationship of man and woman and sexuality within marriage to be snares and nets and chains and death. That's what sin brought into God's holy and good and pleasurable and delightful design is corrupted 
here, and that's what he runs to. I discovered more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. And he addresses this slavery and destruction the sexually immoral woman brings to a sexually impure man. While he addresses the woman, it is the impure man who embraces her. And the pain is emotional. It is greatly consequential. He says that it is more bitter than death, and it brings bondage. Use the language hands that are changed. More bitter than death. The moment of pleasure, and there is a moment of pleasure to be sure, is far outweighed by the lasting pain and destruction. If only this could be seen up front by so many who were caught in the moment as Tolkien warned his sons, whether it be in a moment of romance or a moment of base sexual longing, whatever form it comes, however decorated or raw it may be, if it could only be seen up front, that if it's taken out of its context, its only end, no matter how it comes to us, can be destruction, can be ruin, can be shame, can be sorrow, can be regret to the individual. Oh, how many stories over and over and over again there are of this reality. Even Christians who are forgiven, even Christians who have received the forgiveness of God and repentance for sexual sin, yet, and even Christian couples before marriage carry that in their marriage, and it is something that needs to be overcome. None would rejoice in that decision who were not faithful, but in fact would change it if they could. And he says here, this woman, however, is more bitter than death. This isn't, this is the one who is intentionally enticing to sexual sin. And the one who follows after her, he says, whose hands are chained, whose hands are chains, her hands are chains, and the one who embraces her are chained with her. And again, sexual sin is particularly enslaving. It is particularly enslaving because of its profound impact on our souls. It is dangerous as much as it is good. Every culture has known this to some degree, but I think in many ways, and it has been acknowledged, ours experiences this danger in some ways unique from any others. Yes, there was open and public and flagrant sexual sin and periods of Greek culture and even Roman culture and so forth, but never has it been as available as it is now, so ubiquitous in its presence so easy in its access, so secretive in its ability to be hidden from men. One has said this, a raid, speaking of our culture and the temptation to pornography, a raid before him, this modern man, are a seemingly endless variety of naked women, sexual images of explicit carnality, and a cornucopia of perversions intended to seduce the imagination and corrupt the soul, to be continually presented with a woman whose heart is snares and nets and hands are chains. This is why it was a continual emphasis of Solomon to warn his son against these kind of temptations. He says in 
Proverbs chapter five, my son, give attention to my wisdom. In other words, listen, I'm telling you ahead of time. I'm letting you know of the dangers. I'm, I'm trying to keep you from the pain that comes from failure. He says that you may observe discretion. Your lips may reserve knowledge for the lips of an adulteress drip honey and smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable. She does not know it. Now then, my sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house or you will give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel run cruel one and strangers will be filled with your strength and your hard-earned goods will go to the house of the alien and you groan at your final end when your flesh and your body are consumed and you say how I have hated instruction and I my heart spurned reproof proof I have not listened to the voice of my teachers nor inclined my ear to my instructors I was almost an utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and the congregation but listen to how right in the middle of this warning of saying, listen, I'm telling you, sex can be destructive. Sexual pleasure with that woman can be the ruin of your soul. But then he immediately delights in the reality of God's design for sexual pleasure. And he says, drink water from your own cistern. Sex is good. That kind of sex is bad. This kind of sex is good. Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets? God has given you a covenant wife, a relationship in which you are to delight in every kind of sexuality that is pleasurable and God-honoring and draws you together. But constrained within that covenant, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth as a loving hind and a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress in the embrace of the bosom of a former foreigner? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord. He watches all his path. His own iniquities will capture the wicked and he will be held, listen, by the cords of his sin. By embracing the woman whose hands are chains, you will be held by your own sin and you will die for lack of instruction in the greatness of folly. He will go astray. And so he warns and says, this is there. There is a place that sexuality is to be delighted in. It is to be enjoyed. It is to be experienced in all of the fullness of the pleasure for which God designed it. But outside of that, it will lead to your ruin. It will lead to your destruction. And so wisdom this is wisdom under sin says, I realize there is a goodness available to me, but I must be aware that sin does not corrupt the good thing God has given to the ruin of my soul. I know that much is the idea here. And again, the temptation is constant, constantly thrust before the eyes of men and more and more women who also more and more becoming entangled, not only with pornography themselves, but with the fruit of it in a sexually permissive culture that has utterly degraded the idea of marriage and utterly made its single mission to divorce sex from the covenant of marriage. One has said this, our society has institutionalized lust 
weaving the patterns of illicit sexual desire throughout the culture's interplay of media, entertainment, status, and advertising. This generation is absorbed in a continual cycle of lust and sexual gratification. Try to go through one day and not be confronted with sexually explicit material or some presentation in sex, whether again it be base or in a romantic context that divorces sexuality from that exclusive bond of marriage. Try to go one day without that. You can't. You can't. And again, destruction here is on the soul of men, but the, the weapon or the ability, the intent is to divorce sex from marriage, the covenant of marriage, that delighted union of a husband and wife committed to one another and the permanent bond of their union, creating a stable family, a stable unit for society to raise their children and to picture the, the reality of God's own covenant love for his people. We want to make sex something that's totally for our pleasure in our own fulfillment. We define morality personally. It's my personal morality, my personal boundaries, my personal limits, rather than defining that as God defines it and standing with inside his own warnings and his own wisdom. Again, Solomon brings us there because it is such a powerful force within humanity, and he says the wise person recognizes this and avoids it. But who is the one who avoids it? And that's where he takes us in the second part. How can this be avoided? Not everyone is destined to fall to the temptress, and not every woman seeks to ensnare. So who can avoid this? He says, one who is pleasing to God will escape from her. And of course, he's looking at this from his own perspective. As a male, all of this can be turned around in the other way. But the sinner will be captured by her. In other words, who can avoid this temptation and this destruction? Who can embrace God's gift of sexuality and know it in its fullness without all of the corrupting pain that sin brings? He says this one, the one who is pleasing to God. In other words, the one whose life is well-ordered under the covenant, who fears God, who turns away from evil, and seeks to live within the sphere of God's blessing. This is the one. This is the one. It's the one, as he says in Proverbs 4.23, the one who watches over his heart with all diligence, knowing that from it flow the springs of life. The one who watches over his heart with all diligence. The one who fears God, as Solomon has already addressed in many places, but in this context, in verse, I think, 18 or so. He says this, what does it mean then to fear God? The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, to see the, the temptations that will come and to develop such a desire for righteousness that we would hate evil that threatens it, to hate pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth. I hate. So the wise person who is pleasing to God, who lives within the context of the temptations of sin, avoids this woman. The wise person stays away, as he said in Proverbs earlier. Doesn't go near her. Who falls? He says, again, verse 26, the sinner will be captured by her. Well, we're all sinners. He's already made that. There's not a righteous man on earth. But here he means the one who has determined to live or who's developed the habits in their heart of living unrighteously. 
because his heart is already predisposed to her temptations. Again, to watch over the heart with all diligence. Who is the one that is tempted? The one who has already let his heart move in the direction of temptation. The one who has not cultivated the fear of God within. The one who has let the mind be conformed by the world without rather than God's revealed will. Therefore, he has little defense internally, and when temptation presents itself from without, he falls. This is what he warned about in James. So how do we avoid this? The wise person seeks to live a life pleasing to God and will escape from her. The sinner will be captured from her or captured by her. It's one text. What do we pray in relation to this? Listen, I think of this often. Paul's prayer to the Colossians, he says, since the day we heard of it, we've not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Not the knowledge of his will as some secret deep insights into the mysterious workings of God, his secret will, but that you would understand what he has revealed to us about the gospel and about holiness revealed to us in his word. And he says, I want you to be filled with the knowledge of it, the understanding of it the spiritual wisdom and the spiritual understanding. Why? So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with power according to his glorious might, attaining all the steadfastness and patience and joyously giving thanks to the Father who qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. This is the idea here. In this expression, who? The one who is pleasing to God, who has ordered his life in a way to be pleasing to God. And then he reflects on this universal mystery of and ruin that sin brings, and it again moves him to reflection in verse 27 to 29. And this is, maybe could be summed up in this way, that the wise person remembers that sin has corrupted what God created good. And so he says, behold, I've discovered this, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find an explanation, which I'm still seeking but have not found. In other words, I'm, I'm, still, I'm still complexed. I'm still confused. I'm still confounded by the way that sin works, by the destruction that it brings, by the way that the world is so swayed by things other than the will of God. I'm perplexed by it. I can't define, discover ultimate meaning in the way that God rules over it for his own purposes. I just know that it's there and it's wise to remember what God has said and to follow him. And so he says here, I've discovered this, adding one thing to another to find an explanation, which I'm still seeking but have not found. He says this, I have found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all of these. Now that's, Pretty shocking statement at first. Let's consider what he means and what he says. I have found one man among a thousand. That is among all of his, the men that he knows among the world of men, which would have been his associates, his commanders, his confidants, his friends and so forth. Even among all of them, he says it's hard essentially to find a true and a trustworthy friend among men is even it is hard to find one whose integrity and character can be so sure that they can be brought into the most intimate fellowship and be counted on and can be stable and can be delighted in. He's saying they're rare. 
that kind of man is rare among men. Even the best fail, most notably his father, Solomon himself was child of an ungodly union that started with ungodly beginnings. He says it's hard to find. Again, this is another way to express the frustrations of the reality of sin, that there's not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and never sins. That part isn't so shocking. It is in some measure, but not so shocking. It is the second part where he says, but I have not found a woman among all of these. Now, is this just some hateful, misogynist expression of a jaded person? But clearly it's not to say that somehow men are more righteous than women. Even in the example of the woman who snares, it takes an ungodly man, a sinner, to fall to it. One is not more righteous than the other. And clearly Solomon, and especially scripture, does not credit more righteousness to men than to women. Let me just give you a few of Solomon's own words. Proverbs 12, 4, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who shames him is rottenness to his bones. There is a woman who is a crown of joy and a woman who is rotten. Proverbs 14, 1, the wise woman builds her house, but the foolish woman tears it down with her own hands. Proverbs 18.22, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Proverbs 19.14, house and wealth are an inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord, is a gift from the Lord, is a blessing from the Lord. Proverbs 31.10-31 is a declaration of the glory of the strength and integrity of a godly woman and the way that she is a foundation of blessing to her home and to her children and to her husband. This isn't some disparaging of women, quite the opposite. Women are exalted as the very stabling influence of counsel and wisdom for men, the helpers who give them the ability to accomplish what God has designed them to do as well, who is the glory and the crown and the joy of her husband. And it's just as true as well that unbelieving men are brought to faith at times to the spiritual fortitude and strength of a godly woman in 1 Peter chapter 3, that he might be one through a godly wife who serves and submits to him. And that a Christian man is counseled and strengthened and made better by a godly wife who is a sharer in the grace of life. So then where is Solomon getting this from? Solomon is speaking here from the jaded edge of his experience, which is the fruit as well of his own doing. This was Solomon's experience, and it is the experience of the one who lives unwisely outside of God's covenant demands, outside of faithfulness to the covenant, outside of righteousness. This is the experience. I mean, consider the well that he's drawing from here. The 1,000 women that formed the consort of his princesses and concubines would not likely be a, a group among which he would find a companion who is trustworthy and a committed partner. That's the idea here. He's speaking of that and saying, this is the, the reality of the company that I have chosen, the life that I have myself enslaved myself to that has cut me off from the true blessing that is available and should have been mine if I had been committed to a faithful covenant life. Instead, I wasn't. I spread my streams abroad. It led to my ruin. And among them all, I found none that could be the one that God designed a woman to be. 
And so this is really the fruit of his own foolishness, his own foolish decisions, his own foolish life. And the reality is that a cunning, seductive, and adulterous woman has been the ruin of many men, and many men have ruined themselves by seeking after her. And it's just as true that men have lived to the harm of many women, using them rather than treasuring them. And again, all of that only takes place outside of the context of God's design for sex and marriage. What God designed as good, as beautiful, as holy, as pleasurable, as sensuous, as desirable, as bonding, as profound and connecting as it is and should be within marriage, the world knows it mostly only through its corruption, only through its pollution of God's good design. And so he concludes it all here. And so essentially it's this, in short, that Man has corrupted all of these good things. Remember, in the background of the whole book of Ecclesiastes is the strong presence of Genesis 1 through 3, creation and the fall. And so in short, picture here is that what God created good has been corrupted, has been corrupted. And the concluding verse brings it all together, and this is where we end. It is an Old Testament statement essentially about what theologians call the radical or the total depravity of man. So he ends. So what is what is the conclusion of all this? He says, verse 29, Behold, I found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. This is a comprehensive indictment of the rebellion that resides in the heart of man against all the goodness and the holiness and the promises of God. This indeed, in one statement, is a history of mankind from Genesis all the way down to Revelation, a history of God's dealings with men and man's dealings with God. It's the story of angels and of men. Let's just consider a survey. God created angels, holy, upright, endowed with perfection, strength, beauty, and blessing. And yet many rebelled, the chief of which is Satan himself. So many places he's described in Ezekiel, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. But here, listen to Revelation, just summarizing this reality. It says, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, his head were seven diadems, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Speaking here of that rebellion that took place in heaven by led by Satan, the devil, in which his position of privilege and beauty was corrupted in his own heart. And he led a rebellion and he was cast to earth along with those who followed him. God created angels in his presence and yet they fell. God created man without sin, placed him in a paradise, encouraged him with a promise, blessed him with his presence, provided everything for their joy. And what did they do? They rebelled. Eve was deceived and chose to step outside of the bounds of both the headship of her husband and the blessing and the word of God. And she listened to Satan Instead, the serpent, and what happened? She fell. And Adam, high-handedly knowing exactly what he was doing and the command of God and the disobedience of his heart, took from the apple the fruit that she gave to him 
and fell as well. Thus sin entered into the world and death through sin, all of the misery that it brings. Even in this condition, God called out Israel from among the nations, revealed his holiness, his redemption, his glory, gave them warnings and promises and much patience, established within them a sort of reinitiating of the Garden of Eden and the temple in which man could come and be present before God and enjoy the fellowship that was lost and could begun to be restored. And what did Israel do? Ultimately, they rebelled against God. They rejected his word. They rejected his promises as a nation. They rejected his covenants. Listen to the way that Second Chronicles ends after recounting the history of Israel and ultimately the fall that was coming. It says, Second Chronicles 36, verse 15, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. God sought to bless. God sought to encourage. God sought to call back. And yet man rebelled. The nation rebelled. He came to his own creation, to his own people, Israel, in the person of the Son even to all of humanity that bears his image, that are the fruit of his creative purposes. And what happens? And some of the saddest words in scripture is the gospel of John. He says this, he says, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man through his life, through his teaching. He was in the world and listen, the world was made through him and the world did not know him. Why? Because they stood under the death, the reality of spiritual death and sin and they did not see him. They did not know him. He came to his own who had the covenant, who had the promises, who had the prophets, who had the temple and those who were his own did not receive him. This is the history of man. Even though he dwelled among them and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. What did humanity ultimately do? What did Israel and the world there represented by the leaders of Rome do? They crucified him, rejected him in open shame. In the words of Paul in Acts 2, they nailed him to a cross. In the words of Philippians, he submitted himself to death, even death on the cross, the humiliating, painful death of a cross. That's what man did to God. He came to his church in the Holy Spirit, endowed us with every blessing and sent us into the world as light to the nations. And yet even within the professing church, rebellion can be found. Even within the professing church, in which has received all of the promises of God, has had borne witness to them the glory of God in Christ. And he says this, speaking of the church, realize in the last days, Difficult days will kind times will come. Men, this is speaking of those in the professing church, will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control, brooders, hater, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness although they have denied its power, its saving and sanctifying power. And then what are they going to do who live like that? He says in 
Chapter four of Second Timothy, they won't endure sound doctrine, sound doctrine that confronts, sound doctrine that humbles, sound doctrine that sanctifies, sound doctrine that exalts Christ, that deals with the reality of sin, that looks at grace in all of its fullness. Instead, they will want to have their ears tickled and they'll accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. The ones that affirm my own desires, my own will, my own way, my own one, that doesn't confront me and humble me and change me and shape me, but simply encourages me in the things that I, by my own reason and for my own purposes, have designed to be, have sought out. That's the church. And even among the world where the church is a influence and a right representation of the truth of God, the world won't receive the love of the truth, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, and so God will send a deluding influence, giving authority to the Antichrist, and ultimately will destroy what remains of rebellious humanity who refuses to repent. That's Revelation 6 through 19. Even after Christ returns, even after Christ establishes his kingdom on the earth, even after Christ has executed judgment and justice on the earth, even after he's come in the glory of his father with his angels and bound Satan for a thousand years and thrown him into the pit. Even after there were thrones and judgment was given to those who sat on them, even after there was the resurrection of the body, even after all of that, it says when God does it at the end of the age for a thousand years, it says that when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore when they came up upon the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. Fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown in the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Even after God establishes his kingdom, even after there's the glory, even after you have those who entered into that kingdom in an unresurrected body are beholding the glory of angels and the resurrected bodies and the resurrected saints, even still man is prone to the deception of sin and rebels and God has to destroy them. Amazing. God created man upright. God displays his uprightness and calls man to it and promise for reconciliation. And yet man seeks out many devices, rebels. That is the history of mankind. Indeed, even we who are regenerate, who have received new life in Christ, who are united to him by faith, who have the internal indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit, who have the sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit, who have the word of God. We know within ourselves that if we were not for God's redeeming and preserving grace, we would fall again into the wiles of sin. God must keep us. Even we who are regenerate know that God has created us new in Christ and yet without his preserving grace, we would seek out many devices. And still we struggle with that, this side of heaven as Remnants of that fallen still reside in us until we're fully redeemed. So what is the takeaway then of this? What is the takeaway of that? It is this. Just as Solomon has already been taking us in this section. To look again to God's sovereignty and to his purposes. The takeaway then is this, is that we are to look upward to the sovereign grace and decree of God. To trust him, to fear him, to keep his commandments, which is how Solomon is going to end the whole book. 
to know that he alone rules over sin, rules over man, rules over the world, and he alone will set things right. He he is the one who is sovereign over good and is sovereign over evil. He is the one who is working out the mysterious plan and eternal decree to bring about his ultimate end, which we know is the summation of all things in Christ. He decreed the reality of sin through man's rebellion, but he also decreed its destruction through his own doing, the suffering of the Son. And he ultimately has decreed to end things better than the beginning in perfect glory and fellowship with his people and all who belong with him to him and the Son. This is the end. It, man has sought out many devices, but God will make all things new. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There's no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Again, note the language here. The very last words of creation before it was unfallen was the husband and the wife, naked and unashamed in the covenant of marriage, in delight, in joy, in pleasure is now restored in its ultimate meaning and its ultimate end in the reunion of man, the church, with Christ. I saw a holy city in New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among them, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. This is the most intimate, intimate relationship is picking up on the very covenant among men between in sexual intimacy here and in its ultimate expression is that union and man will enjoy with God forever and totally satisfy our souls and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain the first things have passed away Behold, I'm making all things new, right? For these words are faithful and true. He says, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the springs of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. That is the end of the story. That is the end of the story. And the big picture is this. Salvation is from the Lord. It's the only way we could ever be saved. No matter what God does, we will seek out many devices. Salvation is from the Lord. He planned it. He accomplished it. He applies it. He will complete it to his everlasting glory in Christ. And so wisdom lives contentedly under the plan and the purpose of God until then. Recognizes the reality of sin and says that my wisdom has limits. And ultimately, our wisdom is limited by this, the revelation of God in Christ and in his word. And we hold to that. Wisdom lays hold of the reality of sin in this world and holds on to that world that is to come and which the sin which has already been defeated in Christ knows its full expression when it's removed from this world forever and we are united to him in eternal joys of blessing and covenant union and relationship. And so we would be wise to live with that worldview, to avoid the seduction of sin, to avoid the seduction of the world that would call us to see things from its perspective rather than encouraging us to see it from God's perspective. They are in opposition. And that's why, again, where we left off, 
How do we gain this wisdom? From God. How do we live in light of this wisdom? By his power who reveals his word to us. What is the center of his wisdom? The person of Jesus Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and under whom all things are going to be summed up and who is the center of God's wisdom and redeeming and for that matter, creative purposes. That's wisdom. It's found only in Christ and following him. So with that, let me close us in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have rescued us. You created man upright, and we've sought out many devices. You have given to man repeatedly those demonstrations of your glory and of your grace and of the free offer of salvation that you accomplish. And yet, for most, it will be rejected. You have called us to listen to wisdom. You have called us to avoid evil and the pain that it brings. And yet, so often we do not listen because we know best and we go our own way. Oh, God, keep us from our own foolishness. Keep us from the sin that is bound up in our own hearts. Keep us from being dominated by the foolishness that is bound up still in our flesh. Make us humble and wise, humble to listen to your counsel, humble to follow it, humble to turn away from sin, trusting in grace, and knowing that while your providence is mysterious in this world, both in how you let us suffer, both in how you let your people taste not only the sin without, but at times our own sin within, but all of it, so that for your glory, we might trust in Christ. For your glory, we might hope in what you have promised to do. For your glory, we would live in light of your purposes, which are summed up in Christ. And so help us, Lord, to do this. Thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. And it's in the name of the Lord Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, may the Lord bless you, and uh, we'll pick it up next week. Uh, actually, uh, Tim Malvaso, Pastor Malvaso, is going to uh, bring the message next week, and so we'll look forward to that. Pray and pray. May the Lord bless you.